Amen. Well, we are going to be reading today and studying God's Word today from Philippians, the second chapter, the first 11 verses. And I would ask you, if you are able, to stand, as is our tradition, out of honor for the reading of God's Word. This is Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, this is your word spoken to your people. I pray that you have already softened and prepared our hearts to hear you speak to us today. I pray, Lord, that you will make me a humble speaker and that you will make all of us humble listeners to you as you are the one speaking to your people today. Because, Father, you uh, give grace to the humble, and we need your grace, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage is actually fodder for multiple sermons. We could spend weeks here. Um, I don't know that Pastor Stacy would let me stay in his pulpit for that many weeks, so we'll do it in one. Matthew Henry refers to this passage and says that there are two principal themes, like-mindedness and lowly-mindedness. Um, as an aside, if you're not familiar with Matthew Henry, he was a commentator uh, back in the later part of the Puritan era, very accessible, very uh, readable, pastoral, devotional, and, and free, available online everywhere. Just Google Matthew Henry and you'll find his commentaries. I encourage you to include them in your personal Bible studies and devotions. You will be richly rewarded for doing so. No charge for that. But his, his summary of this passage is that it focuses on the themes of like-mindedness and lowly-mindedness. And we're going to take those two themes this morning. In John 17, Jesus prayed to his Father that his people would be one as he was one, is one, with his Father. Recently, the World Encyclopedia of Christianity revealed that there are 33,000 
Christian denominations. We have a ways to go. Unity is hard to achieve. And so is humility. I always have found interesting Numbers 12, where, where it says that Moses was a very humble man, the most humble man in all the earth. Presumably that was written by Moses. Of course, it was divinely inspired, so he gets a pass for that. But it is true that humility is hard. T.S. Eliot has said that humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of self. Nothing dies harder than that. And I think a lot of us can bear out the truth of that. So both unity and humility are hard to achieve, and yet we are called commanded even to pursue both. And so both of those are at the root of where we are going in our message today. There are two principal points. Um, the title of the message is, Do You Have the Mind of Christ? But the two principal points are, Our salvation should be evident in our unity and humility. And second, our unity and humility should reflect the mind of Christ. So as to the first point, our salvation should be evident in our unity and our humility. Let's look first at the, the very first verse in this passage and the very first word. You'll see either a so in the ESV version or you might have a therefore. I always tell people in the Bible when you see a therefore, you want to find out what it's there for. And in this case, it's referring us back, as it usually does, to the last chapter, Philippians 1, verse 27, where Paul expresses his desire that the church at Philippi be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. So you see a like-mindedness being called for by Paul there at the end of the last chapter, and he's restating that here. He's getting back into the same theme here at the beginning of chapter 2. And of course, these chapter divisions are not, nat are not normal anyway. They have been added to the text. So it flows right from his discussion in chapter 1 into this discussion. But Pastor Stacy preached on this last week, and you remember that he made a couple of comments. He said that unity is the evidence of a gospel-worthy life. And divisiveness, by contrast, is unworthy of the gospel so this is a big deal. And Paul, in verse 1, introduces four conditions. I'll call them four conditions. First, he says, is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, for believers, for followers of Christ, if there's not encouragement in Christ, then where? He says, is there any comfort from love? Well, if we are not comforted by the love of God that was so great that He sent His Son to die for us, then in what can we find our comfort? He says, is there any participation of the Spirit? This it could also be translated fellowship of the Spirit. The word is koinonia. The, the, the pagans would use this word to indicate those who lived in one village and drank from one well. What a beautiful picture of the church, right? We are, you, we are united in one body and we're partakers of the same well, if you will, the Spirit of God. And in fact, if you're not a partaker of the Spirit, I would argue that you're probably not even in the body. You're probably not genuinely converted if you are not a participant of the Spirit because it is the Spirit that gives life to us when we are saved. And then finally, he says, any affection and sympathy? 
Well, if those aren't present, then that means that their opposite is present. And those are condemned in verse 3. If you skip down to the beginning of verse 3, it says if you have uh, selfish ambition, different translations say selfish ambition and conceit or strife, which is in some. If you have strife or contention, unity will never flourish. And of course, if you have conceit or pride, but kind of by its definition, you're pushing people away, even pushing people down. So certainly humility is not flourishing in that context, nor unity. And this doesn't just mean pride or conceit in ourselves. This can be in our agenda, our social group, our, however we identify ourselves, even our political parties, whatever it may be. If, we are, if, if our involvement in that is pushing away believers then we are violating the spirit of what Paul is calling us to hear. And this is a classic if-then construction. He's basically saying, if these conditions are met, then, and he goes on in verse 2, complete my joy. If these conditions are are complete, if if they have been fulfilled in your life, if you have encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, participating in the Spirit, sympathy and affection to some degree, then you are a believer in Jesus. And if that's the case, complete my joy, he says. Paul has labored labored in these churches in Asia Minor for close to 15 years. He started his first missionary journey around 48, AD 48. This letter was written in the early 60s, probably 62. So 14 or 15 years, he's been going from church to church, getting, getting stoned, getting beaten, being left for dead, being shipwrecked. He's been in all kinds of, of struggles trying to plant these churches and nourish, nourish them to, to maturity. And so he's saying, complete my joy. And what he means is, I want to see you mature. And how does he want that to, what does he want that to look like? Well, he continues in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. For Paul, that is preeminent in maturity in the church is like-mindedness. Now, he lists some other issues here, but I don't think these are... Uh, a continuing list, I think these are uh, an explanation of when he says be of the same mind. Because we could quickly tick off the box that says, yeah, I agree with that statement of faith, or I'm a card-carrying evangelical, or whatever it may be, without really diving into what that means. And so I think Paul then uses these next phrases to dig deeper into what he means. And first he says, have the same love. That has to do with our passion. What do we love? What are we called to love? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love Christ. And how can you love the shepherd without loving the sheep for whom he died? Love God. Love fellow believers, people in general, but especially those that are in the body with you. That's part of having the same mind, is having that passion. And then he says, being in full accord. I take that to be our perspective. We are part of the body of Christ, and we should see everything from that perspective. Our worldview should be based on the fact that I identify as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, as part of the body. Too often, 
in our evangelical culture today, we are so concerned with the relationship between Christ and us, the vertical relationship, that we fail to realize that we are in that relationship collectively. We are part of the body of Christ. And I think that's what Paul wants us to, to stress here. And he says in Greek, this literally means co-spirited. Isn't that a cool word? Co-spirited. The same spirit in you is in me. How then can we have this divisiveness? How can we be pressing apart from each other if our perspective is that we are in the body? And then he also reiterates again, he comes full circle and it says again, be of one mind. And I'm taking this in the sense of our position, that we are in the body, Christ is our head. That is where we stand positionally. And he's going, I think he's setting the stage for where he's going in a couple of verses. He says, have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. So I think what we need to see here is that Paul is saying we need to have the right passions, meaning our love, the right perspective, being in one accord, knowing that we are in the body, and the right position, know that we are, as the body, are dependent on our head, Christ, and we are to have his mind, be, be, be fed, be led, be guided by his mind in and through us. This is a hard teaching. Not, not hard to teach. It's a hard to do. It's hard to say, I'm going to set aside my agenda, my preferences, my, uh, my love, my passions for the body. And yet that's what Paul is saying here. You are in the body. That is your primary identity is as a member of the body of Christ. And he continues in verse 3, he says, do nothing, we already saw that, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I grew up using the King James, and in my mind this will always be esteem others higher than yourself. That's hard to do. What he's saying is be hard on yourself, but gracious toward others. Admit your own faults, but let love cover the faults of others. Jesus in, in Luke 14 made a similar case. He said, um, if you're invited to a fancy party, don't go sit right next to the host. Because then he might say, get out of your seat and go down. That's not where you're supposed to sit. Instead, sit at the bottom. And maybe he'll invite you up. And James in 4.10 pretty much says the same thing. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, what is this exalting? I'm not talking about uh, material success or anything to do with, with our health or anything. That all can happen. God gives those things to whomever He wills. But the way that God exalts us most is by giving us a better understanding of who He is, by drawing us into a deeper understanding, to, to know God more fully, to know Christ more deeply. That's the ultimate gift that God can give us. And as we humble ourselves, we set ourselves up for that wonderful blessing from God. And humility is not, it's not belittling yourself. That's not what we're being called to do. This isn't uh, what the culture might think of as humiliation in, in a negative sense. It's really, it's really just a matter of being honest with yourself about, about who you are. 
we have a tendency to compare ourselves with other people. And if we do that, we can certainly find some that are higher than us uh, on, the, on the socioeconomic ladder and some that are below us. And so it's, it's, it's hard to be, be humble in that sense when we are um, comparing ourselves to some people who we feel pretty good about our, relation, our, our status in regards to them. But that's not the call. The call is to look to Christ. And that's what we're going to move into in the next few, few verses. But Calvin said, man will never attain to a true self-knowledge until he has first contemplated the face of God and come down after that contemplation and looks inside himself. How can you not be humble at that point? And that's what we're moving towards here. And then in verse 4, Paul goes on. He says, esteem others higher than yourself and then look after their interests. Now, he doesn't say don't look after your own. As a matter of fact, he says look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. So certainly we have obligations and duties and responsibilities. If we are fathers or mothers or heads of household or whatever it may be, we have, we have a role to play. But he's saying in addition to that, look after the interests of others. So, esteeming others more highly than yourself, looking after their interests, is that evident in the way you live? Is that evident in the way you give? Is that evident in the way you pray? These verses, three and four, are also contingent upon one. Verse one is, is, is basically outlining what it is to be a Christian. And Paul's saying, if, if you're genuinely converted, complete my joy. But then he's also saying, if you're genuine, genuinely converted, then this is what life should look like. You should be esteeming others higher than yourself. You should be looking after their interests and not just your own. And that's really what he's been getting at in this first section. And that's why I said our salvation should be evident in our unity and in our humility. In our, our passions, our love for Christ above all else, our perspective understanding that we are in the body of Christ. And we want unity in the body more than any other kind of unity. Let me make that clear again. My, my desire should be for unity in the body more than any other kind of unity. Sure, those are great. I, I would like for unity in every circle that I travel in, but the one that should matter most to us as Christians is unity in the body. And then finally, we should be, all of this should be evident in our position, in our, uh, our humility, in the fact that we are esteeming others. Uh, do we turn the other cheek? Do we turn the virtual cheek? When someone says something online or we see something in a forum that is either offensive to us directly or just in general, and we are, are we sometimes too hasty to type out a retaliation? Is that consistent with what Paul is calling us to do here? You know, if we stopped here, if we stopped after verse 2, a cynical reader might think, well, Paul's just really wanting to, to get some, a little bit of payback. He's wanting to say, look, I have invested so much in you. Can you just give me back the, the, some, a sense of completion? All right, I'm in a bad spot here. I'm not a, it's not a good time in my life. Give me some good news. Tell me that, you are, uh, that you're doing it right so that I can at least feel like I succeeded. But but you know, you do, one doesn't have to linger long in the letters of Paul before Paul is going to point you to Christ. And that's the case right here. And he moves on in this next passage to, to make it very clear that his motivation isn't personal. His motivation is that he wants us to look like Jesus. 
And that leads us to our second point. Our unity and humility should reflect the mind of Christ. In verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you or among you. Uh, in English, we don't have a plural uh, pronoun, which is why in the South, people say y'all. My wife spent her first 30 years in Asia, and she says y'all better than y'all do. But we have different parts of the country. You got Ewans, and you know, it's just something that we struggle with. But the Greek's very clear. And that's what's going on here. He says, let this mind be in you, plural. So again, we have this unity thing. It's not let this mind be in this person and that person and that person. It's let this mind be in the body of Christ, of which we are all a part. And he says it's yours in Christ Jesus. It's just ours for the taking. We already possess that. It was, it's part of the grace that we have been given at our salvation. Well, anyway, he goes on with this, praise God, we're not left without guidance. We have a model of this, of this kind of humility and this humility that breeds unity. In verse 6, he says that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, to be in the form of something, that's an outward expression of an inward reality. Only God can be in the form of God. We can be in the likeness of God, which is a, a reflection of God or the image of God. I think of it, if I think of a mirror, this is me. When I see myself in the mirror, that's not me. That's a reflection of me, all right? So we are a reflection of God, but Jesus was in the form of God because he's God. And we can compare that down in verse 8. He's going to say that he was found in human form which means he didn't just reflect a human or uh, appear to be a human, but he was also in human form. We get in this little section here one of the most confounding doctrines in Christian theology, and that's, throw a big word out, it's the hypostatic union, the idea that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Awesome, awesome truth that we find in passages like this. And then it says he did not... Uh, can, this is a very hard passage uh, line to, to translate. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Other versions would be, um, um, didn't consider it robbery. Uh, but but the, the idea is, if he's God, then he's not robbing God by saying he's God or by, taking the, by claiming the name of God. Jesus is fully God. And that's what makes the but in verse 7, the conjunction but in verse 7, so amazing. The, the contrast, it's, it's not unusual for me to be born in human form. It, it's kind of what my parents expected, right? They, that's what they expected would come out. I'm a human. But when God is formed, comes as a human form, that's astonishing. That's amazing. So anyone who would think or any... Uh, Religions that would teach that Jesus was a mere man was, would certainly not be consistent with this passage. And in fact, a recent uh, study came out that said a surprising number of people in the church even uh, don't believe that Jesus is, is equal with God the Father. So grasp this, understand it. But verse 7 says that he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. So there's a couple of things to draw out here. He's in the form of a servant. What's that mean? He really was serving. It wasn't pretend. That's really who he was. But then it also says he was in the likeness 
of man. So Paul takes the, the, the care through the inspiration of the Spirit to say that, Paul, that Jesus was both in the form of a human and in the likeness of a human. So he not only was human, he appeared to be human. So, so many of the heresies that the early church dealt with are, are cleared up in these few verses right here. And one major issue that is in the church today, and I do want to uh, pause on this for a moment, is this, ver- this verb in chapter, verse 7 where it says, he emptied himself. Uh, the kenosis theory is what that comes from, from the Greek word there. But this is common in a lot of um, teaching today, especially among prosperity uh, doctrine people. They, are, they take this to say that Jesus set aside his divine power, his omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, that he set that aside and then came to earth as a man, merely as a man, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it goes so far that one, uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Copeland says, that we are just as much an incarnation of God as Jesus was. And that's, that, that's the logical outworking of that doctrine, isn't it? If Jesus set aside his divinity and came to earth just as a man and then was just anointed with the Holy Spirit, well, we can be anointed with the Spirit in the same way. But that's not what this teaches. He did not stop being God. What he did was he shrouded his glory in humility. He shrouded his glory in humility. The outward expression of his glory, of his majesty, that's what he, what he uh, didn't let be seen as he walked among man. And I like the King James there better. It says he made himself of no reputation. And that kind of has more the, the, the idea of emptying is, is, is what's being abused by some teachers, whereas the idea of making yourself of no reputation really emphasizes the humility that we're seeing here. He didn't lose anything. He added something. He added humanity and that of a servant. And then verse 8, and this is our model. This is what I want us to grasp today. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One commentator says this, In all scripture, indeed in all literature, there is no passage which combines such extraordinary extremes as this. The apostle opens the golden compasses of his faith, placing one jeweled point on the throne of divine glory and the other at the edge of the pit where the cross stood. And then he asks us to measure the vast descent of the Son of God as he came down to us. Beloved, that is what I want us to come away from today, is to the amazement at the depth to which Christ humbled himself for you and for me, and then his call for us to follow that. And it's not only in this passage that we see that. In Romans 15, Paul also writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then also Peter in 1 Peter 2.21, For to you... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in his steps. Let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you. I am an imperfect man, and I don't have any business being proud. I'm a a flawed husband, a, a floundering father, one minute giving grace, the next minute losing my patience. I like it when other people are kind to me, but I'm sometimes hesitant to be kind. Sometimes I'm not kind. I have no justification for that kind of pride, and yet, as Eliot said, T.S. Eliot said, the desire to think well of self. It's hard to kill that desire. It's, it's in our sinful nature. Beloved, we think we are high. Jesus is. We, we posture humility. We, we, we feign humility. He, he truly humbled himself. We only go so far. He went to the cross. But that was Friday. That was Friday. And on Sunday, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. Let's look again at this last passage, last part of our passage. Therefore, God, the therefore is there because Christ humbled himself. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ endured Friday because he could see Sunday coming. That's the model for us. That's what we're supposed to follow. Follow Christ on Friday. Look to Christ for Sunday. Follow Christ on Friday, where we are now. Look to Christ for Sunday. Have the mind of humility. Jesus said, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Have the mind of humility but also have the expectation of hope that makes us fearless. Paul in Romans 8 said that Jesus rose. When he rose, he was the first of many brethren. I have the hope that Jesus rose, and now I will as well. So that hope undergirds everything I think and do in my worldview. So have this mind of humility and have this expectant hope. And so our unity and humility should be reflective of Jesus' humiliation, that's the theological term, but we could just say humility, of his humility and his exaltation. We just saw this last week, I think, also, uh, where Paul says, to die is far better. There's the hope, but it's necessary to remain. There's the humility. So Paul understood that we were operating in this, this dual perspective that I am supposed to be humble here. I am, it's Friday here in the sense that, that I'm still in the midst of a fallen world, but my hope lies ahead of me. Our application today is really just reflection and meditation that will uh, lead hopefully to a response But I have a few questions to help us as we meditate. First, can you identify with the cross? Do you grasp the penalty of sin that was paid on your behalf, if indeed you have trusted Christ? And if you do grasp that, do you willingly, even thankfully, share in the the suffering as a testimony 
of your relationship to him. Remember last week we were, uh, we were reminded that even the gift of suffering is graciously given to us. Do we joyfully, thankfully, willingly suffer? And is it evident in the way you live your life? Would someone, would an observer who's watching you say that, that you prefer hum- unity more than division, that you're humble, not proud? Can you identify with the resurrection? Is your hope built on kings and nations, on elections and candidates, on, on your own ambitions and efforts? Or can you say with the hymnist, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness? And again, would an observer of your life say that you have to have a great hope because you're fearless when you face opposite, when people oppose Christ and then by extension you? Now, I'm not saying you're fearless when they oppose you. I'm saying you're fearless when they oppose Christ. And because you're in Christ, it doesn't matter because you will suffer for Christ because you're you understand your position in Christ. Now, if this doesn't define who you are, I understand. But if it describes who you long to be, then repeat Paul's instructions in verses 2 to 5. Today, tomorrow, every day until your hope is realized. Embrace Friday in the expectant hope of Sunday. That's how we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ that, that wants the body to be one and wants us to be humble. You know, in the Greek, uh, we, we, Jesus said there in Matthew that uh, I'm lowly in heart. That was actually a slur among the Greek mind to say you're lowly. And Jesus is saying that. And he calls us to do, be that with him. But if none of this resonates in your soul, it may be that you do not, do not yet know Christ. And so I would encourage you to seek him while he may be found. Have this mind of Christ. Amen. Father, as we move into a time of response, where we might confess to you areas in our lives where the mind of Christ isn't so evident. May you heal us, encourage us, may you remind us of the hope that lies before us so that we too can endure whatever it is that we're going through in this this crazy time, this, this world that's so shook up and upside down in some ways, Lord, but, but you're still in control. And to the hope that you've laid out for us all the way back when Jesus burst out of that grave is the hope that still guides us and encourages us today. So cause us to have the mind of Christ, to endure whatever is set before us right now, knowing that we will be in his arms for eternity.